So glad to be here with you today. Continue our study in Nehemiah. I thought we had such great chapters this week. Uh, such a great God. Reminds us of how faithfully God pursues us. Praise God for that. Um, I have a story of pursuing. I met my husband, Ted, at a Young Life camp. That's how I came to Christ in Young Life. And uh, Ted was doing program there in Colorado, and I was running the snack shop, which is why he fell in love with me. <laughs> because I made fresh donuts every morning. And then I found out my leader, my summer staff leader, was taking these fresh donuts, putting them in Ted's mailbox, and signing my name to a card. I mean, really. So then I found that I just kept doing it after that. Um, we didn't get to spend much time together. One night we got to have pizza together. That was our only date. Ted knew I had another boyfriend who wasn't at the camp, so every time I saw him he would tell me, you do not like him. You do not like that guy. <laughs> so, when I got back to Chicago, Ted showed up a month later, all the way from Fort Worth, Texas, in his run-down old beat-up car. And then he came about once a month after that. Uh, he was pursuing me. And he knew he wanted to marry me months before I knew I wanted to marry him. Because this was all scary and quick and fast. And so we had a little discussion about that. And so he had this engagement ring. And he kept it in a little pocket right here under his coat or whatever he had on. And he told me, I'm going to have this here every time we're together. And then when you're ready, I'll give it to you. Which was awesome. And so we spent some time together. And whenever I saw him, he'd look at me. And after doing that a few months, God said, marry this guy. Take that ring. This is an illustration of how God pursues us with patience, with purpose, with love. He's loved us beyond our imagination. It's as if our whole lives, he's doing this for us, waiting for us to understand the depth of his love, his hopes, his plans for us, waiting for us to realize we don't love that old boyfriend, our old way of life. We belong to him. Sometimes we get it. We commit ourselves to him and we're following him and we're obeying him. And then sometimes we look up and realize we have wandered away from our commitment to him. We've turned away by our disobedience or by our complacency. It reminded me of the hymn we love to sing, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And here's the amazing thing. Guess what God does when we respond to his love in this unfaithful way. We can count on the fact that he is still patting his heart. What an amazing truth. Look on your verse sheet, 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This is our spiritual history, sometimes being faithful, sometimes being unfaithful. God always being faithful. This is Israel's history. From Israel, we can learn some principles of how to return to God 
when we have either been unfaithful because we've been lazy (laughs) or because we've been defiant or because we just have been selfish and want to make our own path. And the truth is we have to do this Every time we have to return to God, if we want to have an abundant life, if we want to reap spiritual blessings, if we want to bring honor to Him, and every time we stray, we have to return to Him again. Look at what Job 22 says. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. That's our faithful God. The first half of Nehemiah was about rebuilding a wall. The second half of Nehemiah is about rebuilding a people, the remnant in Judah, whose devotion to God was mediocre at best. What they needed to be reminded of is who they should be. This is the amazing prayer of Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a story of God patting his heart for his chosen people, Israel. Last week was fun. We looked at that when they'd read the Word of God and they, they were sad. And then Ezra said, hey, go out there and, and celebrate. And then they read about Moses and God giving him the command of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember that? Where they were to go out and buy, get not buy, find big branches uh, in the woods and bring them back in the forest and make booths to live in for a week. Because it was reminding them of when God was faithful to them in the wilderness. And so they're confessing, they're rejoicing, and finally they're obeying. They're doing this Feast of the Tabernacle. And every one of those elements that's happening to them that we looked at last week, it was bringing them to a place they needed to be so they could totally return to God. And so what was happening was they were recalling the calling of God for Israel. That they were not a people at all until God had called him. That if it wasn't for God, they'd be ignorantly worshiping false gods today like everyone around them. That they had the privilege of being a light in a dark world. That they were to reap the blessings of God. That they were to be holy because they served a holy God. That God loved them, had plans for them, had hopes for them. Like they were coming out of a fog. And as their remembrance grew of their unique calling from God, they responded with the only possible way to first respond to God when we found we've abandoned our calling. They grieved. Recalling the calling of God in our lives brings grief to our hearts. You know... They are in this position of grieving just two days after they were celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles and rejoicing. They were happy then. Two days later, if we looked at them, they're this group gathering together, this scraggly-looking group of people in sackcloth made out of goat hair with dirt on their face, their stomachs empty because they're fasting. They're grieving. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their head. You know, sometimes our words can't really perfectly express the depth of an emotion we're feeling. 
And Israel knew that. So how do they express the depths of their mourning? By their outward clothing, by their countenance. So we see them in this goat hair, wearing these loose clothes. That would represent inner mourning. With the dust and the dirt on their heads, that was a symbol of death, which would mean the depth of their feeling and their sadness. And when I read this and thought about their grieving, for some reason it made me think of Peter. And remember Peter, a chosen disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus told him, you'll deny me three times. And as Peter's in a courtyard by a fire when they've arrested Jesus and the cock crows and Peter says for the third time, I don't know that man, curses the woman, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he looks above the flames of the fire and he catches the glimpse and the contact of the eyes of Jesus Christ himself. And Peter runs away weeping. The reality that he had abandoned his calling as a chosen disciple of Jesus Christ whom he loved brought him into a deep grief. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus never stopped patting his heart for Peter. He wouldn't stay in that place. Jesus had great Plans for Peter. So here's the wonderful truth. Grieving is the first step toward lasting joy. Think about the joy that I think the Israelites in Judah were feeling when they were doing this Feast of the Tabernacles. You know, this was a novel thing to them. This was exciting. This was fun. Hey, there's my neighbor. Hey, did you find some good branches? Hey, come build your booth over here by me. Hey, we're all building booths. This is fun. Hey, Have a piece of chicken. Come on over in my booth. There they all are, fun, having a great time. What if they'd gone home that day and just saying to each other, wasn't that fun? (laughs) We should do that again sometime, have the Smiths over and spend some time with that. What if they never let it sink into their hearts that they were supposed to be doing that for all these years all along? That years had gone by, that they ignored this command, which celebrated the faithfulness of God. That they were a people that belonged to the one true God with a unique calling. And they had abandoned that calling. How long would their joy have lasted if they just thought that was a lot of fun? This seven-day feast, needed to leave something behind more permanent than just a sweet moment of celebration. They needed to realize their calling. And Ezra knew it. That's why he let them return two days later in great grief and mourning because that would lead them into the joy of the Lord that is enduring. And that is a joy that comes when we are faithful, understanding our calling, And we are faithful to it. Now, you and I also have a calling in Christ. Look on your verse sheet, Ephesians 1. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. First Peter, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What happens when we walk away from our calling, this calling we just read here? We have to grieve. We have to grieve like Judah did because grief conquers the pride and the selfishness that has taken residence in our heart. Grief pushes it out and makes room for the lasting joy that can come from God alone. Look at Psalm 100. Shout for joy, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Remembering who God is, who we are in relation to him, is what brings lasting joy. Setting aside our own agenda for life and realizing you're God. I'm sheep. I'm in your pasture. You're my God. That will take grief and bring great joy into our lives. Okay, recalling their calling led them to another action. Look at the first part of verse 2. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. Okay, so we picture this scraggly group and their goat hair and their sackcloth and their dirt and their empty stomachs and they're all kind of gathering together and we see around them the foreigners on the outskirts. Recalling their calling was going to renew divine romance in their hearts. So in this verse, it looks like, oh, they're separating themselves from their foreigners because they think they're better than the foreigners. Now, we're missing the point if we think that. This verse isn't about looking down on the Gentiles. This verse is about looking up at God and renewing a romance with him. Look at Leviticus 20. God said, I have set you apart from the people to be mine. The foreigners represented the Jews' unfaithfulness to God. They represented Israel's love for the world over their love for God. Israel had given her heart away to people who didn't even know God. And so as we envision this group, this remnant of Israel together here, we see them standing apart from those people. They are making a statement, we belong to God. We don't belong with you. We have a unique calling. God passionately loves us. There was a marriage in our church a few years ago. I know a lot of you were there. Um, and it was a sad situation. It was a beautiful young woman whose uh, parents didn't want to come to the wedding. And so because of that, the father wasn't going to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle. And so I remember I was on the front pew, and this was in the old sanctuary, and Everybody was there. So this beautiful woman, someone opens the door for her at the back of the church, and she steps about two steps at the back of the church, the back of the aisle, in all by herself. 
into the church and stands there. Now, the groom-to-be was watching and waiting. And he looked up, he saw her, and literally took off running. He ran from here. He ran down there. Of course, we're all, oh, <laughs> we all burst out crying. <laughs> He'd been looking for her. And he got her, and he escorted her down the altar, down to the altar. It was beautiful, and he brought her himself to be married. And I thought, this is what God had done for Israel. No one else claimed her. No one else cared about her. No one else made her a people and wanted to be their provider. Bless them. No one had loved her like God had. No one pursued her like God had. When you and I stray from God, forgetting our calling, it's usually because we are living out a romance with the world. Remembering our calling exposes that that's what we've done. That we've given our hearts to other things and to other people that don't love us and haven't pursued us. This is an opportunity to return to the one who loves us the most. To step away from the world and look up and say, I belong to God and he is crazy about me. Remember when Jesus was trying to describe how great God's love is for us? It's one of my favorite Bible stories. Even when we have neglected our calling and been unfaithful. He told the story of a rebellious son who took his money, all his inheritance, left his father and his family and said, I'm going to do my own thing. And he squandered his money on selfish and immoral living. And one day when he was eating the pig's food, he stopped and realized, you know, my, my father loved me. I could go back to him. I could humble myself and confess my sins. And so he starts his journey back to his father. Do you remember what happens? Even before he gets onto his father's land, his father has been looking for him to return. Patting his heart. And when his son comes close to him, instead of even listening to what he has to say, the father grabs him, kisses him, holds him. Jesus is saying, that is how much God loves you. Separate yourself from a romance with the world. Rekindle your romance with God. James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You know what I really believe? I believe that much of the sin in our lives is a result of not understanding just how much God loves us. I think if we could understand it just that much, we would be mortified to sin against him. Understand how much he loves you. 
1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. And I'll have to add, if the world knows us really well, that should tell us something. Who has our heart? Finally, when we remember our calling, it grows wisdom into our hearts. Look at verse 2. The second sentence. They stood in their places, confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Okay, so here's this group of people. They're grieving. They're confessing. Four things taking place here. Confession, the word, prayer, and worship. And I have to say, these are the actions and the attitudes of the wise. Because these disciplines in our life bring us to a deeper understanding of the greatness of God. So for three hours, the Jews listened to the word of God. It led them into three hours of kneeling, their heads down between their knees in prayerful confession and worship. And after three hours of reading the word, three hours of confession and worship, the Levites cannot help but stand up and they cry, stand up. Praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And everyone jumps up. And begins to praise God. That's what happens when we're exercising those disciplines in our lives. We can't help but praise God because we're growing in our understanding of how great he is. As he becomes greater, these other things in our life become smaller and smaller. Look at 5B to see what they prayed. Actually, yeah. Starts with, blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And so at that moment, we witness these people in this barely inhabitable city with heathen encircling them. They look pretty poverty-stricken and sort of insignificant. And all of that goes away when they focus on the reality of their glorious God. The greatness of God. I was at um, my wonderful friend Marianna's house, who's right over there somewhere, a couple years ago, and we were praying before dinner, and it, Tad and I and her husband, Jim, and we were holding hands. And all of a sudden, at the end of the prayer, it, Jim was like overcome with how great God was, and he just yelled out, Glory! <laughs> and I remember thinking, Glory, that is absolutely right. How great is our God? When we are in these kind of disciplines... We understand that, and we become wiser people for it. Following this great adoration of God here is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. So I want us to think about it. People standing together as one. The voices of the Levites praying 
coming over their bowed heads as they pray. And in this amazing prayer, we are going to review the history of Israel. And guess what happens while they're reviewing the history of Israel? They're going to be reviewing the faithfulness of God. They can't help but do that. This is another principle of returning to God, reviewing his faithfulness. And I want to mention this. Judah's leadership planned to pray this prayer because they're bringing the hearts of the remnant and returning them to God. So try to imagine that you're part of this Jewish remnant. You're standing outside the temple probably. The Levites are probably standing on some of the temple steps, lifting up their voices to God. And what would it mean to you as a Jew who has returned to God's land, being exiled in Persia, to hear the promises and the hopes and the plans that God had had for Israel? And you would look around God's city, Jerusalem, which was just a shadow of its former glory, and you would think about the fact that you are really subject to Persia in this promised land. You are paying them taxes and following their rules. So when you hear about the faithfulness of God, can you see how their hearts would start to be encouraged that their life wasn't over? that God would be faithful to them from this point forward. And I think they also would begin to realize the great consequences of disobedience to God as well. So if you read this prayer, you probably know, like I did, it's, it was like watching a ping pong tournament. Israel's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness. Israel's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness. Back and forth, back and forth. So... Um, I want to get on one side of the ping-pong table, so let's get on the side with God and look at God's faithfulness to them. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you. You made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, and as Ted says, mosquito bites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. The remnant reviewed the birth of their nation and found God righteous. You can look up Genesis 12 to see when this took place. Abraham being pursued by God. God tells him, you will be given land. You will be blessed. You'll be the father of a great nation. All peoples on earth will be blessed because of you. We know that came true when Jesus Christ was born. The whole world was blessed. He was a descendant of Abraham. Now, the Jews with their heads bowed are believing God was righteous. He kept his promise. We are in the promised land. But I wonder if some of them did this. It doesn't look very promising. Why is that? And then the prayer that says, And Abraham, whose heart was faithful to you. And I think the Israelites thought, That's it. That's why it looks like this. We haven't been faithful to God. The prayer continues to the next phase of their history. 
And we see God's faithfulness upheld again. Look at verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and the people of his land. You knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. Look at verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud didn't cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You didn't withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. The remnant reviewed the delivery of their nation and found God gracious. Israel, starting with Abraham, now they are growing into a nation in Egypt. But when Joseph dies, they become slaves of the Egyptians and they're pressed. And they now number a couple million people, counting wives and children. But as they cry, God has not forgotten his promises, he delivers them miraculously out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. That must have been something to watch. Guides them through the wilderness with a cloud by day, a fire by night. Do they realize how much we would love that? I thought about, God, what college should I go to? A fire over TCU. I will f Who should I marry? A cloud over that guy. It would be great. He provided for all of their needs. The Jews, in their sackcloth, their hearts would be stirred. Look at what God did. He could do that for us. He could be our provider too. Look how much he loved us. And then they pray about their next phase of history. Verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them, God, your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land. You had sworn with uplifted hand to give them the remnant reviewed the confirmation of their nation in the wilderness and found God compassionate. These decrees and ordinances of God were to confirm the nation, uniting them as a children under the one true God, to direct them in maintaining holiness, to provide a foundation for them to prosper. And we see the love of God between every line of the law and underneath every stone they walked past in the wilderness. God's compassion was there. And the remnant near the temple may have been thinking, we have the opportunity to follow these laws again. 
we have the opportunity to carry out God's decrees and reap the bounty of God's compassion. What about the part of history when they lived in the promised land? We'll find out that the remnant reviewed the growth of their nation once they entered the promised land, and they found God to be patient. God gave them kingdoms, nations, frontiers, sons, daughters, multiplied them, victory in battle, produce, fertile lands, food. Verse 25 tells us they reveled in the goodness of God. I love that sentence. They reveled in the goodness of God. Why did they find him patient? Okay, we got to go now to the other side of the ping pong table. The unfaithfulness. Of Israel. Verse 26. Once they are in the promised land, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, God. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. I realized in the, this one verse the Jews rebelled against God and anything connected to God. His words, his prophets, his promises, his law. What was the result of that? Verse 27. So you handed them over to their enemies to oppress them, but when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. And we're going to read that two more times in the rest of the um, chapter there. And we see the discipline of God, and it points out that God is just. Okay, what about Israel's reaction before they came into the promised land? We'll step back. Look at verse 16. In the wilderness, they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen or to remember the miracles you performed among them, they became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Every time we walk away from God, we're getting enslaved by something. They were willing to do that. Can you imagine forgetting the miracles with Pharaoh, the parting of the Red Sea? Instead... As Moses was receiving the law on Mount Sinai, they all got together and said, we've got to make a god. Let's make a golden calf. And then they worshipped it and said, oh, worthy is the god who took us out of Egypt. A little piece of metal that looked like a cow. Ignoring the god who was pursuing them and had been faithful to them. What was the result for them? 17. Look about in the middle of that verse. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. The mercy of God. We can see God's faithfulness to Israel. It's demonstrated by his perfect balance of mercy and justice throughout their history. We never see in his mercy, God compromising his holiness. His discipline was to uphold his holiness. His mercy was to display, um, his forgiveness was to display his mercy. 
And when we read these verses, we think, oh my gosh, how could they rebel against God who did these things for them? They saw these miracles. How could they do that? He loved them and blessed them. Delivered them from slavery, dropped food from heaven, kept their clothes from wearing out. But then we walk past a mirror, at least I do, and I remember, oh, I can do the same thing. God can bless me and give me every good thing. Every good thing in our life is a gift from God. And yet we can still forget that and walk away from him. So we also have to review the faithfulness of God in our spiritual history to return to him. We should be able to see how he perfectly balanced justice and mercy in our life. And you may be thinking, what if I can't do that about certain situations? What if I just think, I still don't get why this happened, God. I don't understand why you allowed this in my life. It just seems cruel to me. We can stay there and be bitter and be resentful. Or we can trust he is who he says he is. He is who the word of God says he is. And move forward in faith. Grow our faith. Trust in the character of God and move forward. When my daughter, I thought about this, uh, was a young girl. She was at somebody else's. And uh, they put on a very evil movie, and she watched most of it, unfortunately, and came home and really was literally traumatized. And um, a lot of things go along with being traumatized. And I watched my little girl become a depressed, anxious, um, hurting uh, little girl who really couldn't even go to school without me sitting in my car outside her classroom all day so that she could make it through class. And there were, in my mind, some spiritual warfare going on in the place where she was. And and I felt like it was just targeting my daughter, like the enemy had a spotlight on her. And I could feel that. And I can remember going to her bunk bed and Standing over it and telling the enemy, she does not belong to you. She belongs to God. And I would pray and talk to God. And if you had asked me for many years after that, do you understand why God allowed that? I would have said, no. No. So I asked my daughter when I was coming down here, should I tell that story, Cassie? And she said, oh my gosh, yes. That's a part of who I am. God used that in my life. I wouldn't be seeking him, I don't think, today, if I hadn't gone through that hard thing as a child. we got to trust that God covers his compassion in all the things of our life. And we move forward in faith. Okay, this part of the great prayer is done. The history lesson is over. Standing near the temple is this quiet group. They're overwhelmed by what they've heard about God, the plans, the promises, the mercies, the miracles. But we also see that they see themselves as slaves in this land of promise, and they are distressed. But now they have hope that God could fulfill the dreams that he had for them 
beginning when he called Abraham out of the darkness. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us and upon our kings and leaders, our prophets and priests, upon our fathers and your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully. While we did wrong, we're coming to you. We're returning to you because you never change. You're faithful and just. This is a great place to be in our lives. When we've been unfaithful, we look up and we see God is still there. He is still there, patting his heart, waiting for me to return. Even though we may feel this distress like they felt, even though we may live in a broken land of our sin like they were, we can look up and see he is still there waiting for us to return and his promises are still true so we can renew a commitment to him. Now, how do we know how to do that? That's what we uh, can learn from the Jews as well. They made a binding agreement. It started with their heart because guess what? If you think, I'm just going to follow this list of rules, I'm just going to do it. How long will you be able to change comes from our heart that we've given to God. So we hand him our heart. That's the beginning of the commitment. And the Jews signed a written agreement before God. The rest of the people who weren't the Levites and the priests and the leaders, they made an oath and a cursing before God, which meant we will obey this agreement or put calamity on us, punish us. The goal of the agreement was Judah's faithfulness to God. In fact, the word in uh, this verse about writing this agreement um, means an act of faithfulness. That was the goal of what this agreement would do. Whose name's first on the list? Chapter 10, verse 1. Nehemiah, of course. He's this fabulous example for everyone. Okay, what's their commitments? I'm going to go through them fast. First, to obey God's commands. Before they go into the three main stipulations, they say, we will obey God's commands. As they were praying over the history of uh, their nation and God's faithfulness, it would have been very obvious that every disaster that happened in Israel was a result of their disobedience to the word of God. They'd had enough of that. What's our commitment to return to God? It's the same. Submit our life to the authority of his word. This is more than just reading God's word. This is arranging our life around the word of god it's over us it's our authority we can't claim to love god and live in disobedience to his word god says if you love me you will keep my commandments what's their second commitment they will abstain from marrying foreigners this has brought false god false religion false living into the jewish faith what's our commitment the same Hold sacred our spiritual identity. Separate ourselves like they did physically at the beginning of the prayer from the people and the things and the habits that stain our spiritual identity and bring us into false living as well. 
hold sacred who we are, our calling. Third commitment they make is to keep the Sabbath and the Sabbath year holy. This would keep the discipline of worship in their lives. What's our commitment? The same. Protect worship in your life. And I have to say this, we have to plan for it. Worship isn't just going to happen. We're standing talking to a group of women. Wait a minute, I'm going to worship a second. No, we have to turn off things. We have to disconnect from things. We have to sing. We have to have some music. We have to have opportunities to pray. We have to say, I can be alone for a little while. We have to protect our worship with God. Fourthly, the Israelites said we will honor the house of God, the temple, because for Israel, without this strong religious center, the unique faith that they claimed would not survive in the middle of these pagan nations. This is where they did their sacrificing and their worship, etc. What's our commitment to God? The same. Honor our spiritual family. That's God's plan also for us to stay healthy. And to stay strong. We aren't to be alone in our walk. We're part of a body. Now, we aren't all about a building. In the Old Testament, God was in actually dwelling in buildings with the Jews. Today, he dwells in our hearts. So guess who the church is? It's every time we're together as a group of people. And guess what our calling is? Honor it. Realize, I'm part of you. You're part of me. How can I help you? Oh, why'd you do that? Let me help you do this. Let's study this together. Let's pray. Let's go out and tell the gospel to these people. Honor. Protect the church. Keep it unified. Do your part. Okay, so to return to God, we recall our calling. We review his faithfulness. We renew a commitment. And how great... That our God is so patient. He's always doing this for us. And how great that when we return to him, he has great things in store for us. I want us to stand and read this last verse on our verse sheet together. So everybody grab it and stand up. This is what God has in store for us every day until all eternity. Ready? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Everybody talk. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we praise you today. We thank you for your greatness, and we thank you that you pursue us. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.